You come on past the speaker before you turn that thing on. You won't get it. Ah! Oh, it's too late now. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Was it? No, it's still morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there and mothers-to-be. There you go. You know, I was, uh, I had a thought as we were worshiping back there. And to be honest with you, I think we're being set up for a blessing from God. I really believe that. Last week, Pastor Levins talked about relentless prayer. Today, we're going to talk about the cross. And on next Sunday, it is Pentecost Sunday. I don't know about you, but that smells like a setup. So I'm looking forward to what God is going to do here at Freedom Fellowship in the very near future. So when I found out that I was going to be preaching on today, and this was several weeks ago, I kind of struggled with what I wanted to talk about. I knew I wanted to talk about the cross, but... There are so many aspects to the cross, I had to, okay, what part of it am I going to be preaching on? Well, instead of picking apart, what I did was, is we're going to talk about my reflections on the cross. We're going to discuss my musings, if you will, thoughts that God has given me concerning the cross. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Now, I'm going to warn you. I didn't warn the first service, but I'm going to warn you. We're going to be journeying through the scriptures, so get ready. Matthew 13, starting at verse 44. It says again, The kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking godly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so Jesus is stressing here that about an individual who has discovered something that is of great value to them. The problem is, is that it's not free. It costs something. And that's a lesson that all of us, if we haven't learned it yet, we need to learn. Is that anything of great value, anything worth having or attaining, comes with a price. Now, I had to learn this lesson when I was a youngster, and I kind of learned it the hard way. Growing up in Chicago, I was... Uh, Halfway decent basketball player as a 7th or 8th grade. And I wanted to make it to the NBA. And I had a decent reputation for being able to play well. So I thought, oh, I'm going to get there. I'm going to make it. But what I failed to understand was that there were other individuals who were just as good or better than I was. And so I didn't put in the hard work, the dedication, the focus that it took. And as you can see, I didn't make it to the NBA. So this is a very important lesson to learn. Now, back in the 80s, and I know for some of you that's like 
100 years ago, there was a movie that came out called Fame. And it was so popular that they created a TV show that ran for about five or six years in the 80s called Fame. And one of the individuals in the show was named Debbie Allen, a famous dancer, actress, as well as director. Well, in the opening credits, or when they, you know when they open the show up with the music and all of that, fame, I'm going to live forever, all that good stuff. Well, part of the, what they show, no, you don't want me to sing. <laughs> Only in the shower. Because <laughs> we all sound good in the shower. But in the opening part of the show, they show Debbie Allen's character. She's a dance teacher, a very tough individual dance teacher. And she's starting class off. It looks like it's the beginning of the year. And so she wants to tell them what it's like to be in her class, that it's going to take hard work. It's not going to be easy. And here is the line that she shares. You got big dreams. You want fame. Well, fame costs. And right here is where you start paying in sweat. And then she ended with, it ended it with, I want to see sweat. Because she wanted to let them know, if you want to become a, this great big movie star or actress or dancer, hard work is the price you have to pay. Now, there are two crosses that await everyone who walks this earth. You have the cross for the sinner and the cross for the saint. If you would, go with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Starting at verse 27. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he knows that his time is near. And so his heart is heavy. It says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not for my sake, but for yours. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Now, as a young man, actually a little kid, I was taught, that before you eat, you have to say grace. You have to bless your food. Now, I was the typical young man. I wanted to eat as fast as I could. So I tried to come up with the shortest grace possible. And, so, and, and don't ask me where I heard this, but I heard it somewhere. And what I said was, Jesus wept. Two words. Boom, I'm ready to eat. Now, as I got older, 
and got more serious about my walk with the Lord. I would be studying the scriptures and the thought came to me, Jesus wept. Where does that come from? Is that in the scriptures? So I decided to do a little bit of a study and a search. And guess what? There is a verse. Turn with me to John chapter 11. Verse 35. It says there, Jesus wept. Two words. Now, the next question that I have is, is why was he weeping? He's the son of God. He has all power. He's walking the earth. He commands devils out and heals the sick and raises the dead and does all these things. Why is he weeping? So I decided to go back a little bit to the beginning of chapter 11. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now, when I got to this point, I'm like, hold up. That really doesn't make sense. Jesus has been sent word by Lazarus' sisters that he is sick. Now, I would imagine this wasn't the common cold. He didn't just have a tummy ache. Or else they wouldn't have sent someone to let Jesus know this. Lazarus was seriously sick. The thing is, though, instead of Jesus rushing to him quickly, or even speaking the word, because we know Jesus, he didn't even have to be in your presence in order to heal you. He could but speak the word and that person would be healed. But he didn't do either one. The Bible says here in verse 6 that he stayed two days in the same place. As if, so what? He's sick. But that contradicts what said earlier that Jesus loved Lazarus as well as his sisters. So I'm still kind of confused here. Let's look at verse 7. Then after that saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Now, if I'm the disciples... I'm a little bit confused because all we did was share with you our concern that if you go back to Judea, they're going to try to kill you there. And Jesus responds by saying, hey, if a man walks in the light, he's okay. But if he walks in the dark, he's going to stumble. What does A have to do with B? Often, and, and you guys have probably seen this, when God is wanting to move, or when he's doing something, many times we don't have a clue. And guess what? His disciples did not have a clue. So let's read on. Verse 11. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, 
but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. So they're even more confused. If Lazarus is asleep, they think he's just resting. So why are we going to go all the way to Bethany, Jesus, just to awake him? That doesn't make sense. But Jesus explains. Verse 14. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So now the disciples think they're on a suicide mission. They're going to Bethany to die with the master. But that's not really what Jesus had in mind. So let's look at verse 17. It says, then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. So Lazarus has been dead for four days. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou would ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Now, Mary, I don't know if she was getting, not Mary, I'm sorry, Martha. I don't know if she was being spiritual here or she really didn't understand because she said, well, I know Jesus in the last day, everybody's going to be raised. But Jesus drives home the point in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? So what Jesus is trying to drive home the point, yeah, there's a resurrection coming, but you have the resurrection in your presence right now. I can raise him right now. Do you believe this? And Martha responds, yea, Lord. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come, and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. So notice here, Mary, when she first heard that Jesus was near, she just stayed right where she was. Don't know why. Maybe she was just so upset that she maybe couldn't look the master in the eye. But when she heard that the master called for her, that's when she got up. And when she went to him, she basically said the very same thing that Martha had said. In verse 32, at the end, she says, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And here is where we run into the verse in question. Jesus wept. And I'm still confused because now I find out that not only did he weep, but before he started weeping, he groaned in his spirit. So that lets us know something else is going on here. There's another element to this whole thing of raising Lazarus from the dead. In verse 36, it says, Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? 
Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. So Jesus is really troubled. And it just doesn't make sense to me because, again, he's healed people before. He's raised the dead before. So why is this troubling him so? Verse 39, Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? So Jesus is really irritated now. Because when, she, when he tells him to take away the stone, Martha chimes in and says, hey, he's been dead four days, Jesus. He's stinking by now. And Jesus is like, do you not understand who I am? You, you, you really don't. Why would you say something like that to me? I can reverse this. You just testified earlier that you believe that I can raise him again. So what do I care about why he's, if he's stinking? But again, he's still troubled in his spirit, knowing full well that he's about to raise him from the dead. In verse, let's see, verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, I've heard it preached that the reason why Jesus referred to Lazarus specifically is because if he had just said, come forth, everybody would have got out of the grave. So he specified Lazarus. Yeah, try explaining that one. Verse 44, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot, with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. So Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He did what he had set out to do from the beginning. But I still do not have an answer to my question. Why was he groaning in his spirit? Why was he weeping? So I read a little bit further. Verse 46. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. And if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Isn't that interesting? Instead of investigating how a man could raise somebody from the dead who's been dead for four days, they're more interested in the place and nation that they have with the Romans. Verse 51. And no, I'm sorry, verse 49. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. 
and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now the light comes on for me. Jesus knew this wasn't just any ordinary miracle like he had done before. I know that's a contradiction in terms, ordinary miracle. But it wasn't, when it comes to Jesus, the other stuff was ordinary. This meant much more than the other miracles he had done. Because what in actuality was happening was that in raising Lazarus from the dead, he was accelerating his own death on Calvary's cross. In essence, Jesus was trading places with Lazarus. Lazarus represents the whole human race apart from God and without hope. He's dead, he's stinking, and apart from God, there's only one destination for the soul. But Jesus calls him forth, and he comes hopping out of the grave, bound hand and foot, and even has his face covered. And Jesus says, loose him and let him go. Mm, The power of the resurrection and the power of the cross. In all actuality, a transaction was taking place on Calvary. All the evil due to us came on Jesus. That all the good that belongs to Jesus comes to us. That's the point to praise him right there, y'all. There's, there's a trade. Jesus took our punishment for his forgiveness. He took upon himself our wounding and we received his healing. He took upon himself our sinfulness and we take from him his righteousness. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took upon himself our death so that we could receive his life. Jesus took upon himself our curse so that we could receive his blessings. Jesus took upon himself our shame so that we could receive his glory. Jesus took upon himself our rejection so that we could receive his acceptance. And lastly, he took upon himself our bondage so that we could receive his liberty. Praise God. That's why I love the name of this church, Freedom Fellowship. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1. In these two verses here, we see a kingdom principle that's being stated. How many of you have seen the t-shirt, no pain, no gain? Some of you may even own the t-shirt. Let's look at verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Excuse me. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what's the joy that was set before him? You were. I was. Jesus suffered on the cross so that we could walk in the freedom and liberty that he has for all of eternity. He died on Calvary's cross so that we would have life eternal. And when you look at that word life, it's the Greek word zoe. And that Greek word zoe actually means life as God has it. That's what he has made available to us. That means no sickness, no disease, no suffering, no pain, and most importantly, no condemnation. Now, let's consider Calvary a perfect work, perfect in every respect, perfect in every aspect. And just so you know, I didn't come up with that. I'm not that original. I was, I'm reading a book, and actually I've read this book several times, and I'll probably read it several times more. It's by a gentleman named Derek Prince, famous evangelist, famous, God used him to work miracles, preacher, all of that. He's now with the Lord. But he has a book called The Atonement, An Appointment with God, and he talks about how when he was a young man, he was in the British Army. And he had contracted some kind of skin disease, and the doctors could not cure it. They had no medicine. They had no treatment for it. Well, word had spread about this young Christian believer who was, had this incurable disease. Well, a Salvation Army woman, she was a general in the Salvation Army. She was also someone who was filled with the Holy Spirit, so she believed in the power of God. She went to minister to him along with another woman who was baptized in the Holy Spirit, along with another young soldier who was a believer in Christ. And they took him out to a car, and they began to pray for him and pray over him. And though the car was off, the car started shaking because the power of God had fell on the car. Now, God didn't heal Derek Prince right then, but he gave him this word, Calvary, a perfect work, perfect in every respect, perfect in every aspect. Sometime later, God healed Derek Prince just because he believed the word that was given to him in that car. Now, why is the work of Calvary perfect? It's because of what it accomplished. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. It says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. It is at Calvary that Jesus conquered the devil. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 
First John chapter three. Verse eight. It says, he that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. But this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So the cross of Calvary destroys every evil work of the devil. Hebrews tells us that Christ became like one of us so that he could die in our place so that he could overcome the one who had power over death, the devil himself. And it is at Calvary he defeated him. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Now, I know you guys are saying, man, this dude likes to go all over the place. But there's a reason why I do this, because I like for folk to put their eyes on the scriptures for themselves so they can see for themselves what God has done. Start at verse one. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And the reason why there was no man found worthy is because we were all, or had been, under the curse of sin. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Those are your prayers. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. And has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. The cross of Christ redeemed us from the hand of the wicked one. How many of us know that when before we got saved, we were slaves to sin? And because we were slaves to sin, we were under the control of Satan. But Christ bought us back on Calvary's cross. But the scripture shows us didn't stop there. He also made us unto our God kings and priests. Did you know you're going to reign one day? Did you know that one day, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us this, that one day because of your faith in Christ, you will sit and judge angels? Now, I don't know about you, but that's an awesome thought. 
It lets us know the purposes that God had for us from the beginning. And because he is God and he says, I change not, he purposed in the beginning that we would reign and rule with him. And look at the price he paid in order to ensure that we would reign with him one day. That's our God. That's the love that he has for us. Turn with me one last time to Ephesians chapter 2. To be honest with you, that's not going to be the last time. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. It says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. But he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for the making himself of two, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So look at what the cross accomplishes here. The Jews, we know that they were God's chosen people. They are the ones that received the commonwealth, it says here, of Israel, as well as the covenants of promise. So they were near. But he speaks of the Gentiles and says that they are far off. And what does the cross accomplish? It brings the Gentiles near unto the covenants of promise and the commonwealth of Israel. Romans tells us that we have been engrafted into the vine so we have become, in essence, we may not be Jews by the flesh, but we are spiritual Jews because we have inherited all of the promises in the word of the living God. But the cross didn't stop there. Notice it tells us that not only were we made near to the covenants of promise, but he joined us with the Jew. He made the Jew and the Gentile one. And, of course, the Gentile is everybody else. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever color you want to claim or whatever nationality you want to claim, because of the cross, you are one in Christ. Praise God. But guess what? It doesn't stop there. Look at, let's see, verse 16. Thanks, bro. And it says, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, slaying the enmity thereby. Of course, as sinners, in essence, we were enemies of God. The wrath that was due to us, Jesus endured on that cross so that we would be made one with the Father. Remember when he was raised from the dead, he gave instructions, deliver this message 
to my disciples. Tell them I go to my father and your father, to my God and your God, because we have been made one with the father. So I hope you see that picture here. Jew, Gentile. The two of us made one with the father. That passage is a perfect picture of the cross. Now, I said that there were two crosses that await every person. We've talked about Calvary's cross upon which Jesus hung. But there's still one left. Go with me to John chapter 21. John 21. Starting at verse 15. Now, Jesus has already died, he's been buried, and he's been raised from the dead. And he appears to his disciples while they are fishing. And he even eats with them. But after fellowshipping with the disciples, Jesus goes to Peter because he wants to talk to Peter. Verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto them, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, <clears throat> Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. When I was young, living in Chicago, the first, the early years of my life, we lived on the west side of Chicago. And we attended this one particular church, Pleasant Ridge Missionary Baptist Church, 116 South Central Avenue where the Reverend S.T. Evans was the pastor. Now, if you're in Chicago and you're a pastor, you're going to have Reverend before your name, just so you know. And his wife, beautiful woman, could really, really sing, and she would often sing with the choir. But there was one particular song she sang that really stood out to me, and I'll remember it for the rest of my life. And the lyrics go like this. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. That's the message that Jesus was relaying to Peter. That yes, I've bore my cross. Now it's your turn. And now, if you know the history of Peter, it is told that Eventually, Peter laid his life down for the gospel. 
In fact, he was hung on a cross. And Peter was not afraid in any way. But it has been told that he did not want them to hang him right side up. So he asked that they would hang him upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to die the same way his master did. So Peter died upside down hanging on a cross. Can you imagine? But that was just how much he loved the master. Now, there are other examples of believers who had to lay their lives down for the, for the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60, we see Stephen, who's a deacon in the church. He's arrested for his testimony of Christ. And then he tells the beautiful story of how God has dealt with the nation of Israel. And after telling this story, they get so upset with uh, Stephen that they begin to bite him. Can you imagine being so angry at someone? The Bible says, and I believe it's verse 54, that they begin to gnash on, uh, should I say Stephen, with his teeth, with their teeth. I'd say those folk needed deliverance. In Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, Herod at the time had him killed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the apostle Paul, who was at the persecution of Stephen when he was Saul. But after his conversion, the Lord let him know he must suffer many things for my name's sake. And the apostle Paul did. We also have modern day persecution. Believers in North Korea. China, the Middle East, and places like Iraq and Iran, in Africa, northern Nigeria, the Sudan, the Uganda. There are many places where believers suffer because of the kingdom of God. Now, the question that comes to my mind is, will we as Americans, as believers living in America, have to deal with persecution? Now, that I don't know. But I think it's important that we prepare our hearts and minds for the possibility. If you would, lastly, and this is lastly, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> Starting at verse 19. The writer of the book of Hebrews is addressing a group of believers who are being greatly persecuted. And some of them are being tempted to withdraw or draw back from Christ. But he's encouraging them to know, don't do that. Stay with Jesus. Verse 19, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, 
but is it, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the writer exhorts us to do several things. Number one, enter often into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Number two, draw near to God with a true heart. Number three, hold fast to our confession. And I just want, and I'm going to go by my own experience. I have learned the bolder I am, the reason I'm bolder is because I've been in my word and I know God's promises. Stay in your word. Number four, stir up the love for one another through good works. In other words, be ready to bless someone else who's a fellow believer. Because in doing so, you encourage them. You bless them. And guess what? That becomes contagious. Then they go to someone else and they bless that person. And that just continues. And the more that continues, the stronger the body becomes. And then lastly, it says, do not forsake gathering with other believers. Now, this is one that's really near and dear to my heart. One of the things that I have noticed with some folk is that when they're going through things, when they're going through trials, when they're going through tribulations, instead of drawing near to other believers, they draw back. They decide, well, I don't want to go to church today. Because I'm going through this or that. Or I don't want to show up for Bible study because I'm going through this or that. But that is the time when you need fellow believers the most. So please don't do that. One last thing. We're talking about physical persecution, trials and tribulations. But maybe you're going through something now. That's really got you down, got you troubled. And you don't know where the answer is coming from. Well, I got good news for you. The answer is in the cross. The answer is in the cross because Christ has made available to all of us every answer to every need that we could possibly have. Do you believe that? Then give God a hand clap of praise. Stand to your feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I said earlier that there are two crosses that is for every person that walks this earth. The first one is for the sinner. If you're in here, And if you died on tonight, you did not know where you were going. Then you need to get up here and give your life to Christ. If your sins have not been washed in the blood of Christ, if you know that you have never received Christ as your Savior and Lord, I would ask that you would raise your hand. And you want to receive him. Maybe you're someone, you've given your life to Christ. 
but you've backslidden. You've fallen into sin. Guess what? There's a solution. The cross of Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that is you, I would ask that you would just slip up your hand. Okay, praise God. Everybody's walking with the Lord. Lastly, if you have a need and you want someone to pray with you concerning this need, maybe it's for healing, maybe it's for God's provision, maybe it's for reconciliation, maybe you're having problems in your family, whatever the need might be, if you want someone to agree with you in prayer concerning your situation, I would ask that you would come forward now. Anyone? Life group pastors, go ahead and come forward to yes. our ministry team. You know, go ahead and come up here. Just, just stand right there. Yeah, life group pastors. And y'all go ahead and take uh, to the fellowship hall um, if anybody needs any ministry time. through the storm I keep on being reminded of me being in the hospital with cancer and, and seeing death and sickness and discouragement and hopelessness all around me if you feel that way today just come on and, and it's time to throw that depression down in the name of Jesus go ahead and just come up and pray with somebody today and lay that down one of the things I thought about as well today is Mother's Day Maybe there's some others that need healing. Maybe you've lost a loved one. You've lost a child. Maybe that pain is still there. And you want someone to pray with you. Please come forward. You don't have to hold on to it. Jesus is a healer. A physical healer and a spiritual healer. 